Welcome to Evidence-Based Radio. It is Friday night, and that means it is time to talk about science and skepticism. So tonight, um, I do want to start out talking about the hurricane, but before that, as always, you can find me on the web throughout the week at the Facebook page. So that's Evidence-Based uh, radio on Facebook, and you can also find this and previous episodes at evidencebasederata.com or on your favorite uh, podcatching uh, app. Okay, so obviously the huge, huge um, issue right now is, of course, with the hurricane. And this is Hurricane Florence at the moment, at least. That is the one that is affecting the East Coast. Unfortunately, this is just the beginning of hurricane season, because of course, we are only in F. And in fact, I can't remember if it was this past year or the year before, where they actually went through the entire alphabet and had to start using, uh, I think, Greek letters or something like that. Uh, so yeah, Florence is the first major one to hit the East Coast right now. Uh, and it is definitely major. Um, and so the storm is both huge and even more importantly, for uh, damage issues is that it is extremely slow moving. And uh, so around noontime today, the storm was moving at around three miles per hour, which is very slow. And so that is actually part of the problem with this storm, because the slower a storm moves, the more rainfall it will drop on each place where it is located. And so that is one of the big issues that they're having right now is the tremendous amount of rain that is falling. And uh, it looks like for the local region that the uh, remnants of Florence will probably hit us sometime Tuesday, uh, Tuesday night, maybe. It depends, obviously, uh, if you ever look at the forecast for hurricanes, you'll always notice that they are in a kind of, uh, they call it the cone of uh, the, the prediction cone because they're actually really, really, really hard to uh, track still to this day. Um, you know, we obviously don't have great ways to really predict exactly where they're going to make landfall until they're very close to that landfall. Now, of course, one of the things that makes it so difficult is the fact that this sort of um, attempt at divining where a hurricane is going to go is complicated by enormous amounts of uh, math. And a lot of that math is sort of uh, chaos theory math, where, you know, a one temperature degree difference can mean two entirely different things. If a uh, 
if the wind blows for 10 minutes one way, it could change things. Um, they're just huge, incredibly, incredibly dynamic systems that are really, unfortunately, hard to get a hold on. Now, one of the big things that I do want to just give a shout out to, um, because I think that we tend to, you know, very, very um, reasonably because we always think, you know, oh, what were you thinking? But I just want to put it out there that even though anyone who should have been able to evacuate should have evacuated, many people are actually unable to evacuate in these sorts of situations. Uh, so for instance, several municipalities had actually said that they weren't going to bother to evacuate the prisoners in their jails. In addition, many people don't have the ability to evacuate. They lack transportation, they lack money, and even if you're going to a emergency shelter, you still have to get there and you still have to have the ability to be there without having other issues. And of course, some choose to stay. Um, some of those choose to stay because they're, for instance, related to first responders or are first responders and feel an obligation to stay and help those others who can't. And unfortunately, some people are just always going to underestimate the risk or they're always going to know that, oh, well, we lasted through the last one. So this one should be fine, too. And unfortunately, like I said before, hurricanes are extremely unpredictable. You cannot be guaranteed that one hurricane will be like another. And so we'll actually talk about that in a second. But um, I think that the issue is that we just have to do as much as we can to help the people who are going to be affected by this. Um, as we all know, our government is not so great at that. Um, at least these people are in an area that presumably uh, our government actually cares about. Uh, <laughs> yeah, um, I don't even want to I don't even want to talk about uh, what the president has recently said about uh, his response and the government's response to uh, the devastation in Puerto Rico, because I'm just going to get angry. <laughs> um, but let us hope that this is going to go a little better. And um, we just have to keep trying to help the people who are still having issues in Puerto Rico. Um, so for instance, I'm sure there are still a lot of places in Holyoke that are supporting those people. Um, and I did mention at some point when we first started talking about it that the need for those people is not going to end in a few weeks or a few months. So if you do have the ability, you should still try and uh, reach out to some um, nonprofits that are helping those people as well. Okay, now let's actually talk about hurricanes themselves as a general uh, issue. Hurricanes are classed by the Saffir-Simpson Hurricane Wind Scale. Uh, it was developed in the early 70s by wind engineer Herb Saffir and meteorologist Bob Simpson. And so a Category 1 storm is, is defined as, quote, 
very dangerous winds will produce some damage. Category two as extremely dangerous winds will cause extensive damage. Category three is described as devastating damage will occur. And both categories four and five, those storms are defined as, quote, catastrophic damage will occur. And I think that both of them say catastrophic because I think someone must have thought that apocalyptic for category five would be a little over the top, even though the people experiencing it probably wouldn't think that that was over the top at that time. And so the scale starts with a storm that has winds between 74 and 95 miles per hour. Now, this is the lowest end of the scale, but major damage can still occur at this stage. Most well-built frame buildings will survive uh, with potential minor damage to roof shingles and sidings. Flying debris and especially glass from windows poses a risk to people. Tree damage is mostly considered to be snapped large branches and the toppling of uh, shallow rooted trees. But as with any real uh, emergency in the U.S., major electric outages uh, will most likely be encountered because as an aside, our electrical grid is extremely antiquated and not terribly well maintained. Um, it's had some pretty big challenges in the last uh, 10 years or so. So a lot of it has been kind of patchedly upgraded, uh, you know, a couple of years ago, three or four years ago now, during the October ice storm, um, you know, as devastating as that was and as horrible as it was to have not have electricity for a week, pretty much, uh, it is kind of has been nice in subsequent storms to know that basically anything that was going to uh, affect my ability to have electricity had already been destroyed. So, um, yeah, we've actually done pretty good in the last couple of storms as far as our electricity in Hadley. Okay, so the highest, the Category 5, has sustained winds above 156 miles an hour. At this point, mobile homes are considered at maximum risk of total destruction. Many frame houses will also be destroyed. Most windows in the affected area will be broken. Roofs can be sheared off of commercial buildings, so flat-topped buildings. Nearly all signage, fences, and canopies will be destroyed. Most trees will be snapped or uprooted, including telephone uh, and electricity poles. And power outages could last weeks to months with long-term water shortages as well. Because a lot of what happens is that water that would otherwise be potable is actually uh, gets inundated with water that is not potable. And so then you end up with contaminated drinking water sources. And so you just can't get at fresh water. Um, sometimes it's just been inundated with salt water. But the problem is, is that water picks up pretty much everything. And so one of the big problems with the water that's coming in is that not only is it going to have debris, but it's also potentially going to have chemicals 
and all sorts of other contaminants in it. And they are going to spread that around. And for instance, uh, one of the big worries in the Carolinas is that there are a lot of pig farms. And um, if you're not familiar with pig farms, one of the things that pig farms tend to do is they have what are uh, sort of ironically referred to as lagoons. And basically, they are giant artificial lakes that are just filled with uh, the uh, pig's offal and so um, their uh, their feces. And so uh, what happens is that it's kind of considered a storage and it's a whole thing that uh, <laughs> uh, there's a whole, you know, uh, discussion to be had about modern farming in those respects about how maybe we shouldn't do that. But that's a different story for a different day. Um, but when those get flooded out, then that ends up in the general water that is unfortunately coating everything around it. Um, and so that is a big issue. Now, one of the things that is important to note about this, in fact, is that this scale doesn't actually even take into account the damage caused by storm surge, rain-induced flooding, and tornadoes that can account then account for damage caused um, as well. So one of the fun facts about uh, hurricanes is that they can spawn tornadoes because why not add uh, injury to insult uh, from your friendly <laughs> nature? Uh, <laughs> and so, yeah, um, one of the most deadly parts of a hurricane is storm surge. So strong winds will cause the ocean to basically move inland, uh, creating artificial high tides. And in fact, when the true high tide hits, storm surges can add up to 30 feet or more of water height. Now, the combined, uh, the combination of storm surge and tides is called storm tides. So um, the... Um, Storm surge is actually considered the water that's on top of the regular water. So you have sort of your regular tide and then the storm, the storm surge is anything that's above that. But when you're looking at the whole column of water, that's actually called storm tides. And uh, so there is a little bit of a difference there. And of course, the energy involved in the waves, waves is greatly increased because you have this incredible these incredibly high winds driving the water into uh, the coast. And so that can cause rapid erosion as well as destroy boats, buildings, and other anything else that's on the shore, uh, piers, anything like that is going to often be just wiped out by these giant, really intense storm surges. And of course, debris from that destruction is then carried inland and can cause additional damage. And so that water coming in, uh, as I noted before, is extremely dangerous because it can be filled with debris, with all sorts of things. Um, and of course, the rain and storm surge will also often interact with freshwater rivers and lakes, uh, which of course then adds to the general flooding. And so, uh, for instance, there was a riverfront 
that was uh, 30 miles from the North Carolina coast that has actually been just completely drowned. Uh, the river has come up so much that it's just completely flooded the area. And it's because of that water pushing in and because of the enormous amount of rainfall. So for instance, um, I think in one place they've got 14 inches. Uh, and that's about, I think, a third of what they usually get an entire year uh, as in a normal season. So uh, yeah, it's, it's not so good. Um, and so the rain and storm surge are the really huge issues. Uh, and so the National Weather Service uses a computer model called the Sea, Lake, and Overland Surges for Hurricanes, or slosh, to estimate anticipated storm surges. The program uses measurements of atmospheric pressure, size, forward speed, and tracking data, such as uh, the height of the terrain and also the actual track of the storm itself, to create a model of the storm. And so this program can be used both as a predictor and for historical research. But of course, it's not perfect because, again, these are extremely complex systems. And so there's a whole reason why we are always complaining about the weatherman not being able to figure out what the weather is going to be like. It's because weather is actually one of the most complex systems on the planet, and it is super hard to get a handle on exactly what is going to happen because there are so many variables. But uh, just to wrap this up, in case you're wondering, a group led by Kevin Reed, a researcher at Stony Brook University, suggests that climate change might have increased the rate of rain dumped by Florence by up to 50%. Now, they determined this by looking at the conditions that currently exist and ran a model that contained the same hurricane, but subtracted the effects of global warming from the ocean. Rain increases come from increased moisture available in a system due to a warmer atmosphere. And so you have warmer waters, you have warmer atmosphere, you have more water available to then be turned into rain and dropped on the land. Now, this is just a model. It used, it used data that extrapolated both what the storm would actually do in the coming days and what a storm of its size and trajectory would do minus the effects of global warming. So this was all very theoretical, but that's still pretty impressive. Um, and in fact, when other research groups have done these sorts of uh, analyses, they often come up with at least uh, a 20% increase due to the effects of global warming. Um, but again, because this is so preliminary, we can't really take it, uh, as very, very, uh, serious, but, uh, a statement from World Weather Attribution, uh, which is a company that does a lot of, um, tracking and analysis of storms stated that more analyses are needed to assess the robustness of this quick analysis, although the basic result that global warming increases the precipitation is a very robust one supported by observations and modeling studies. So again, while the 50% marker might be a data fluke, 
global warming is definitely contributing to making hurricanes more dangerous. Um, and in fact, there are other measures in which that is happening. So for instance, sea level rise that has already taken place along the coast uh, in the Carolinas and elsewhere may have led to a six-inch increase in the storm surge. It's also suggested that it is 50 miles larger in uh, diameter than it would have been had there not been the effects of global warming. So all of this is really contributing to making bigger, more powerful, more dangerous storms. And um, yeah, so I know that, for instance, there's already been a lot of uh, risk, um erosion in the Carolinas. A lot of the outer banks are really already being really deteriorated by sea level rise. And to have a giant uh, hurricane go over them is not going to have helped in any way, shape or form. And so, um, yeah, it's it's bad. But we can only hope for the best and that uh, we can hope that the people on the ground are doing their absolute best. I know that there was a town that uh, people had been very valiantly being rescued from. And so there are a, a ton of great people out there. Um, lots of FEMA teams that are absolutely trying to do their best. And, um, you know, I think that for the most part, people do as much as they can. And, uh, Unfortunately, there's just not a lot we can do to prevent such things. We can only try and evacuate people and get them uh, safely inland and then deal with the uh, aftermath once it comes. Okay, so let's actually talk about another uh, kind of natural disaster uh, for a moment. This one is... Uh, okay to talk about because nobody died. Um, so I didn't think it was too worrisome to try and uh, sort of pivot to this one because this, this you know, uh, report came out just a couple of days ago and I thought it was really interesting. Um, and so because there were no uh, human casualties, it's much easier to think about it just as a sort of interesting uh, physics and fluid dynamics issue than uh, other natural disasters. So um, a massive landslide and subsequent tsunami uh, tore through Alaska's Tan Fjord on October 17, 2015. The water was moving uh, at some points at an estimated 100 miles per hour. So by investigating satellite and field-based measurements from the slope, Researchers have actually suggested that the slope showed signs of instability for at least 20 years before the final failure. The geologic evidence can help us understand past occurrences of similar events and might provide forewarning, the researchers wrote in the paper, which was recently published in the journal Scientific Reports. Now, the fjord is located in a remote area, um, so it's in the Wrangell-St. Elias National Park and Preserve, uh, which is in southeastern Alaska. Now, it was once filled by the Tyndall Glacier, but between 1961 and 1991, 
the glacier retreated 10.5 miles, leaving most of the fjord open. So the glacier is just now at the uh, front um, opening of the fjord, but it once filled the entire thing. And so as a, as a result, uh, as the glaciers retreat and the permafrost melts, rocky hillsides that were once buttressed by this ice become unstable. Uh, noted the team led by Dan Sugar of the University of Washington at Tacoma and Brettwood Hingham of the environmental nonprofit Ground Truth Trekking. And so, in addition, the area is also plagued by minor earthquakes, which can also destabilize the rock. They suggest that this destabilization led to a massive failure of a hillside in front of the Tyndall Glacier. A large part of the hillside sheared off and plunged into the sea or landed on the remains of the glacier. The dropping of approximately 180 million tons of soil, rock, and anything else on it at the time caused seismic waves equivalent to a magnitude 4.9 earthquake. With two-thirds of the debris landing in the water, uh, a tsunami, unfortunately, was caused. Uh, and so it actually reached 633 feet at the opposite end of the fjord and 328 feet in many places down fjord of the slide. Uh, and so much of the sides of that fjord had been covered in 32 foot trees. Uh, and so those had been gr growing on those hillsides and those hillsides were subsequently stripped bare by the wave of the tsunami. Again, no humans were in the area at the time, so there was no uh, issue in that realm, which was very good, um, because this was probably an extremely uh, devastating place to be at that time. Um, I know that there is a really famous um, story about some fishermen who I believe survived because um, they were just far enough out, but they actually witnessed one of these huge landslides slash tsunamis in Alaska. So this is not the first time this has happened in Alaska. Um, this has happened at least two other times that I know of in Alaska. Um, and it helped, and it happens in other fjords too, because part of the thing is that a fjord by its nature is long and narrow. So when you have a huge amount of, uh, of soil and rock that falls into the water, the displacement in this long, thin area of uh, water causes these giant tsunamis. So um, it's really unclear what exactly was the final straw that caused the collapse, but uh, the researchers noted that the weather had been unseasonably wet for the previous few months, and uh, also they found that there was a 4.1 earthquake around 300 miles away from the slope uh, about two minutes before the actual failure. And so they suspect that when the seismic waves from that hit the uh, face of the uh, hillside, that it might have just been the sort of straw that broke the camel's back and uh, it fell into the sea. 
And so what they found, though, when they looked at historical data was that the slope had actually begun slumping uh, rather noticeably around 1996. And in fact, depressed areas called grabbins had actually developed and were visible on the surface of the slope as it stretched, having been, uh, those were actually visible already in satellite imagery from 1995. And so one of the big things about this is that uh, lessons from this tsunami can be used not only to help researchers with monitoring other slopes in the future, but also the unique nature of layering can be used by researchers studying ancient signs of tsunamis. So not only can this help with the future, but it can also help with understanding the past, especially since, as I said, uh, in Alaska and other places with fjords like this, it's not uncommon. And so apparently, unlike others studied in modern times, this tsunami left three distinct layers of deposition, a layer of fine sand, a layer of cobble-sized rocks and boulders from two to ten inches in diameter, and a final layer of everything from sand to boulders six feet, 16 feet in diameter. And so the researchers noted that the importance of studying these sorts of events uh, is basically in order to hopefully prevent future tragedies. That's the main reason to study this, um, because there are fjords in more populated areas, and so they really want to keep an eye on that. More such landslides are likely to occur as mountain glaciers continue to shrink and alpine permafrost thaws, the researchers noted. Now, again, Alaska has been re has been lucky in recent years. So this one, there was no one there and a landslide and tsunami in Rinkfjord um, that was in Greenland actually uh, did. There were a couple of casualties in that one in 2017. Um, but there was one in Alaska recently where it actually didn't manage the the hillside failed, but the debris didn't actually manage to make it into the water. So there didn't act there wasn't actually a tsunami. Um, it just kind of fell further down the slope. Um, so yeah, so it is great to find these sort of um, really um, well-documented via satellite imagery uh, events so that we can learn from it and hopefully help develop early warning systems for places that are in these sorts of areas and there is actually populations there. All right, so let's take a break. And then in the second half, we will pivot away from natural disasters and talk about other more interesting things than uh, how nature has no interest in us whatsoever and is absolutely uh, uncaring about us. But, you know, it's okay. Uh, on that cheery note, <laughs> I will be back in just a minute. Hi, I'm Charlie. I fight fires and I save lives. My name's Renee. I'm a cardiologist. I save lives. My name's Anthony. I'm an EMT. I save lives. You don't have to be a professional to save a life. Firefighters, doctors, and others save lives. You can too. Don't wait. To learn more about the warning signs and how you can help prevent suicide, visit save.org. In a crisis, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. Has anyone ever asked you, don't you have enough records? Adventure Rocket Ship is new and old, indie pop, 
psych pop, post-punk, shoegaze, lots of chiming jangly guitars and catchy melodies from both artists you know and obscure 7-inch singles from around the world. Adventure Rocket Ship, Tuesday nights, 9 to 11 p.m. on Valley Free Radio. When you get home at night and switch on the lights, do you feel good about the source of your electricity? Did you know that you can choose to power your home with 100% local, clean electricity? You have the power to say no to the standard mix of polluters like natural gas, coal, and oil. Make the switch to clean electricity produced right here in New England. It's easy. Sign up for New England Wind or New England Green Start without any contracts or commitments. Just go to www.massenergy.org forward slash C-E-T. Classical music on Valley Free Radio. Tune in to Andy Musique Wednesday mornings at 7 a.m. for an hour of beautiful music to start your day. Hosted by Lucy and Larry. Fresh Sounds with your host, Ron Freshly, Tuesdays from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. on WXOJLP, bringing you the music of Bud Powell, Wardell Gray, Art Blakey, Duke Ellington, Abby Lincoln, Tad Dameron, Yusef Latif, Bix Beiderbeck, Cassandra Wilson, Tom Harrell, Jane Ira Bloom, and thousands more. Sure, humans can be a little weird at times, but take it from me, I'm a dog. And a person is about the best thing that can happen to a shelter pet. So if you want to learn how you can be that person, get down to your local pet shelter or visit the shelterpetproject.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council. I Heart J-Rock with DJ Sakura is your weekly two-hour show devoted to rock music from Japan. Join me on Saturday nights, 10 p.m. to midnight. I'll be playing the very best and the newest J-Rock, J-Pop, J-Metal, VK, you name it, I'll play it as long as it's from Japan. Thank you. Hello, this is John Hodgman, resident expert for The Daily Show with Jon Stewart and author of More Information Than You Require speaking into a small machine representing WXOJLP Northampton Valley Free Radio found on your radio dial at 103.3 frequency modulation. That is all. Hi, I'm Ruthie, and I have a recorder. Stick them up. <laughs> Listen to Out There on Wednesdays, 4 to 5 p.m. here on Valley Free Radio for interviews and snippets of life from the paths and streets of Northampton. You can hear past editions of Out There archived at weatherbeard.com slash out there. Okay, we are back. And as promised, we are going to pivot away from uh, natural disasters. And we are going to talk a little bit about space again. And so I know I talked about space all last week for the most part with my uh, great guest, Michael Cowan, but uh, I really liked this story, so I wanted to tell you about it. So apparently, and I didn't actually know this for specifically, but there are light and dark markings uh, swirling on parts of the moon. And so basically, there are kind of 
uh, bits of the moon that look like a uh, latte, uh, a slate gray latte, uh, or, uh, you know, clouds in a dark sky, uh, these patches of light and dark swirls. And so apparently there's a bunch of them all over this uh, really cool celestial body that sits up there every night, and uh, we can only see a little bit of it. And so new research suggests that these swirls might be caused by magnetic lava lying just below the surface of the moon. So the study was published recently by researchers at Rutgers University and the University of California, Berkeley. And it suggests that the moon's magnetic field and past volcanic activity might be causing the swirls. It had previously been shown that the swirls were associated with localized magnetic fields. But the cause of those magnetic fields, and thus of the swirls themselves, had long been a mystery. Sonia Tiku, uh, Tiku, author of the study and a researcher at, Uni at Rutgers University in New Brunswick, uh, in the Department of Earth and Planetary Sciences, uh, said in a statement, to solve it, we had to find out what kind of geological feature could produce these magnetic fields and why their magnetism is so powerful. And so what they did was they developed mathematical models that showed that the lunar swirls are connected to a narrow magnetic object located just below the surface of the moon. Now, weirdly, the researchers believe that these magnetic objects are actually the remains of ancient narrow lava tubes that formed from flowing lava or lava dikes, uh, which are vertical sheets of magma that form under the crust of a moon or planet. Experiments have shown that when certain minerals, uh, which are abundant on the moon, are heated above 1,112 degrees Fahrenheit in an in a zero-oxygen environment, they begin to break down and release metallic iron, which creates rock that is extremely magnetic. Though basically dead today, three billion years ago, the moon would have been covered in volcanism. Uh, there would have been lava tubes and dikes, and as they cooled, they created these areas of high magnetism. No one had thought about this reaction in terms of explaining these unusually strong magnetic features on the moon, Tiku said in a statement, uh, referring to the lava becoming magnetic moon rock under the surface and thus causing those lunar swirls. This was the final piece in the puzzle of understanding the magnetism that underlies these lunar swirls. So we both learned about a new thing on the moon and why it's there. I think that's pretty cool. Um, and honestly, I had no idea about these swirls beforehand. Uh, I think it, the, I think the best thing that I can think of would be the kind of way that you can swirl, um, sort of bits of iron filings with a magnet. If you've ever done that in like a, you know, in a science classroom, I, I think that it's probably something like that is going on there. And I did want to make a quick shout out to the folks at NASA who are currently trying really hard to reestablish a connection to the Opportunity rover. Um, so uh, one of the two rovers that was launched onto Mars that was Spirit and Opportunity. Uh, Spirit, unfortunately, 
stopped working several years ago, but opportunity until very recently had been continuing to plug along. Um, but unfortunately, the rover was silenced some time ago by a planet-sized sandstorm. Uh, basically, the entire planet was engulfed in a sandstorm. And because the rover relies on solar power, uh, it could no longer be able to function. And so hopefully it didn't get too caked in dust and that the wind continued to scour and hopefully it is going to be able to uh, come back to uh, power and hopefully they will be able to reestablish a connection with it. And so they are definitely not giving up. They are going to do um, a bunch of signaling for at least a month and a half uh, and see if they can get it to give some sign of life. So I wish them the absolute best of luck because Opportunity has been such an amazing program. And again, even if this is the end of Opportunity, both Spirit and Opportunity ran for years longer than they were originally intended to run. NASA's uh, robots and their orbiters have just been knocking it out of the park um, in the last uh, decade or so. And so, yeah, hopefully they will be able to keep up with that. Okay, so let's go from cutting edge space exploration to the distant past. <laughs> uh, it was recently reported that an artifact has been found, which is being described as the world's oldest drawing. Now, this artifact consists of a 1.52 inch long flake of silcrete, uh, which is a fine grained natural cement of sand and gravel. And so basically it's a little piece of uh, reddish rock and it has a few lines drawn on one face with the iron rich pigment called ochre. And so ochre produces a deep red color and it is one of the earliest pigments ever used uh, by um, hominids. And so ochre is very closely related um, to a lot of hominid species, uh, even before um, modern humans. And so ochre was used very early uh, by humans or by hominids. So it's not surprising that this would be what they were using. And so even though it's sort of faded right now, the lines would have once been bright red. And this is according to Christopher Henshawood, an archaeologist at the University of Bergen. And so he and his colleagues have been working on this and other artifacts from the Blombos Cave in South Africa. Now, Blombos is actually really famous. It's one of the uh, most famous sites for early hominid remains in Africa. Um, and so it's one of those sort of contenders in the old game of where did the earliest hominids that we consider to be on the line of true hominids, where did they develop? And Blombos has always been in the race for that. Um, of course, newer uh, theories sort of don't give it to any one place. Uh, we talked 
I talked about that, I think three or four weeks ago about how, you know, people now kind of think that there was a sort of mixing and matching and a lot of gene flow across the continent and in different environments. And, you know, that's how we got the hominids that actually ended up being really successful because they were doing that kind of um, mixing and matching of genes and really being able to become, um, really uh, multi-purposed. And so uh, one of the archaeologists found the marks while analyzing flakes and debris, uh, which had been excavated from a layer of the cave site dated to 73,000 years ago. So, you know, just a little bit ago. Uh, And so six nearly parallel lines run across the face with three curved lines cutting across them at an oblique angle. And so the researchers actually suspect it would once have been part of a larger piece of rock uh, because all of the lines run to the edge, uh, with one exception, and uh, the stone has really rough edges, and so that it was, it was probably broken off from um, either one or more other pieces. The pattern was probably more complex and structured in its entirety uh, than in this truncated form, wrote Helen Sherwood. Henshelwood uh, and his colleagues in a statement. Now, the lines would have been created using an ochre crayon. The researchers actually uh, did a bunch of kind of hands-on tests to figure out exactly what might have been the uh, way in which this was created. And so they made a bunch of ochre crayons. They also made a bunch of ochre pigment and did a bunch of experiments. Um, Kind of one of the best ways to do a lot of these sorts of things from the ancient past. Uh, There is a lot of kind of experimental archaeology that goes on with trying to determine things from the ancient past because we don't have anyone, obviously, to tell us how it really was done. So you figure they were like us. They were, you know, regular human beings. So how would you think about making this as a human being? And then you you compare what you get to what the actual artifact is. And, you know, I mean, we obviously never say this is how it was done, but we can make a really good argument that this looks very close to how it was done. So we suspect it was probably done in this manner. And so... The researchers found that the crayon was probably, um, had a pretty sharp tip, probably between 1.3 and 3.3 millimeters across. And basically, it would have been like a normal crayon. Uh, they found that if you used paint, the lines were actually too smooth to replicate the lines found on the rock. So the lines actually have that same characteristic patchy quality as those of modern crayons, with higher, smoother parts of the rocks retaining greater amounts of pigment. Now, most of the lines seem to have been created with a single stroke, but one of the lines shows what seems to be back and forth strokes that might have been because they were meant to produce a wider line. Now, of course, this is all speculation because we have no real way to know one way or the other. 
Now, the flake actually seems to have originated as part of a grindstone to grind ochre into powder. So, for in so um, the researchers found that the rock face was smoothed with wear, and had microscopic traces of ochre residue on the surface. Uh, you know, outside of the lines. And so in a way that indicated that it had been used to grind ochre. And so those micro microscopic bits had been sort of ground into the rock. And so uh, as the surface was later smoothed, as it was used as a grounding material, uh, it would have eventually become the perfect place to draw because you had this nice smooth um surface in order to actually apply the pigment to. And of course, again, this is no surprise that it was found at Blombus. Blombus is very well known for early hominid remains. Um, I've certainly heard about it in at least two uh, MOOCs that I've taken, one on anthropology and one on uh, ancient architecture. And uh, so, yeah. And at Blombos, they've also found shell beads, engraved bones, and pieces of ochre dating from between 100,000 and 72,000 years ago. So in fact, at the site, uh, they found a 100,000-year-old kit for creating pigmented liquid. They found ochre, he heated seal bone, charcoal, and other materials required for the process. Now, they've also found similar cross-hatched patterns engraved on various artifacts at the site, which means that the crayon marks most likely demonstrates their ability to apply similar graphic designs on various media, media using different techniques. Um, and so previously, the oldest drawings were those from Neanderthal cave paintings in Spain, uh, which are currently dated to around 65,000 years ago. Though artistic expression is clearly much older, um, this is just the first actual drawing. And so, for instance, uh, zigzag patterns engraved on shells have been found uh, in the um, Pacific from 540,000 years ago, uh, most likely created by Homo erectus. And there have been other places where they have found uh, examples of engraving on bones and things like that. There's some really old ones from Germany. And so uh, engraving is older and actual artistic expression is probably much older. Um, but these are just the earliest things that we are able to find because they were made on durable materials. Because of course, they uh, people were probably making and early hominids were probably making things that came from uh, materials that eventually would have completely deteriorated and we would have never been able to find them. So anything made out of, uh, you know, animal pelts, for instance, or out of um, plant-based materials, a lot of that we're just never going to have found. Okay, so let us finish up tonight with a really um, interesting story about a young woman who was buried in the Maya city of Copan in Honduras. And so uh, she's referred to as the cross-legged woman because she was buried in a cross-legged position. And what's 
even more interesting about her is that she was actually surrounded by the bones of two deer, a crocodile, and a complete puma skeleton. Now, the animals were obviously likely killed as part of the burial ritual for this young woman. Um, she was apparently of some status, and this would have taken place around 435 CE. Now, the bones of this and other big cats have been found throughout the Maya lands, and so it suggests that research to researchers that the cats were actually domesticated and not just hunted in the wild. Now, we know that people in the Americas had domesticated dogs and turkeys, for instance, but this new research suggests that cats and perhaps even other animals were also being kept and traded. Encoded into the bones of jaguars and pumas at the Maya city of Copan was evidence of both captivity and of expensive trade networks. Nawa Sugiyama, an archaeologist at George Mason University in Virginia and lead author of the study, said in a statement, While big cat remains are often found in Mesoamerican sites, for instance, one uh, sacrificial altar in Copan was surrounded with such an abundance of mixed-up big cat skeletons that excavators referred to it jokingly as jaguar stew— the most straightforward evidence of this is that the surrounding landscape was not rich enough to support a wild population large enough to have supplied all of those sacrificial animals. The bones, when analyzed, suggested that many weren't living in the wild at all and were most likely kept in pens and traded. The researchers also found evidence that deer and birds were kept in this same way throughout the Copan Valley. And the way they were able to determine this is that bones from some of the specimens were rich in C4, a carbon-containing molecule found in domesticated plants like maize, but not in wild plants. This suggests the animals were being fed prey that had been raised on human-provided grains. Now, other remains, however, showed an abundance of C3, which is the common version found in wild plants, which means that while some cats were being domesticated, others were still hunted. And in addition, isotopes found when studying the pelts of various animals, including deer, suggest that not all of them were actually raised in the area of Copan, and so that there was almost certainly a wide-ranging uh trade in these kinds of animals. And so what's interesting about this is that it's basically like a thousand years before they thought that people really were doing these kinds of uh, intense uh, sort of penning and keeping animals in the area. So that is very interesting. Um, you know, obviously, it would be great, better if they had been keeping them as pets rather than uh, manufacturing uh, sacrificial animals. But it's still really interesting to uh, find out that they were doing that so early uh, in that area. Okay, so that is all we have for tonight. And uh, please do stay tuned for Civil Politics coming up next. Have a great night. This show is part of the Planetside Productions Network. For more information, please visit www.planetside.pro and thank you for listening.